0: In the last few weeks, we talked about how early anesthesia came to be, and its massive effects on how surgery would be conducted. Since pain during procedures was no longer a major concern, surgeons began experimenting with longer, more complex procedures. But surgery still does not yet resemble anything that we'd recognize today. Especially with regards to safety. This week, we'll tackle the topic of antisepsis, which is a method to combat serious infections, which makes things a whole lot safer. As you'll recall from our first episode, deaths from surgeries were still very common, regardless of procedure at this time. Many of these deaths were from infections, related to the wound of the operation, and more specifically, sepsis, where the infection gets into the blood and spreads throughout the body. Many of these infections came in waves, where a hospital might be free of sepsis cases for months and then suddenly be afflicted by a massive outbreak. You know from season one that at this point, antibiotics don't even exist yet. Treatments, therefore, of sepsis are very limited in the 1860s. Patients would often be given alcohol and beef tea to strengthen them. Beef tea, by the way, is a kind of soup made from beef that was supposed to still give all the nutrients of it. Neither of those treatments really did much good. What can do some good, even before we have antibiotics, is better hygiene. The first records of hygiene as an attempt to prevent infections were not actually directed at surgery, but instead at other diseases more generally. Charles White in Manchester insisted on cleanliness and ventilation of his surgical room as far back as 1773. It somehow then took another 75 years before, in 1847, Ignaz Semmelweis in Vienna required students coming from postmortem or dissecting rooms to wash their hands with disinfectants before entering hospital wards. Deaths fell from 15% to 1%. If you can believe it though, washing your hands was actually controversial in some places, because god forbid you clean up a bit after working with literal dead bodies. Not all efforts to reduce infections were successful, though. For example, one doctor noticed that large hospitals had higher mortality in amputations, and suggested that small temporary structures should be used for surgery instead of these permanent ones. Two different materials were proposed, one of iron to allow for treatment of the structure with flame in order to disinfect everything. The other suggestion was wood, so that you could just burn down the whole thing and then rebuild it, which is certainly one way to avoid cleaning. This solution proved far too cumbersome, not to mention being extremely wasteful, and I'm kind of glad that it didn't catch on, even if it may have been theoretically helpful. In the same vein, Florence Nightingale, the famous nurse, believed that hospitals constructed with a series of small pavilions would suffer less infections. A few were built in Germany, but those didn't show any differences either. Finally then, we have some misguided accidental successes, as science often goes. One theory of how infections spread was by miasma, or a poisonous gas that spread the disease. The thinking went that miasma from sewage or other waste would waft into the hospital and contaminate wounds, causing an infection, upon which the wound would then generate more miasma, spreading it further. So how do you stop miasma? Someone noticed that silver spoons, when exposed to the air of the city, would rust. But that it wouldn't rust if you washed the silver with cold water. Miasma, having no basis in reality, was also believed to cause rust. And so, of course, if you can stop rust with cold water, it should work for infections, too. The answer is no, no it doesn't, because miasma isn't real. But general cleanliness is good, and that's the end result of washing everything with cold water. We'll call it a win. To really make a dent in infections, the doctors had to actually understand what was happening, not just kind of try things based on flawed hypotheses. That couldn't happen until Louis Pasteur came along in 1864. In case you forgot from season one, Pasteur is a big proponent of germ theory, and shows the world that there are these tiny microscopic creatures that could be responsible for infection. And then we have one more man returning from season one, Joseph Lister is back, who we mentioned before for his use of carbolic acid as a disinfectant, a kind of precursor technology to antibiotics. I'd like to point out that this is Joseph Lister, like Listerine, and not Robert Listin, who was the speedy surgeon from our bonus episode. Sorry their names are so similar. This time around with Lister, we'll talk a bit more about his achievements as they relate to surgery. Last season, he was just a bit of setup but this season, Lister defines an entire era of surgery on his own. Firstly, I'd like to paint a quick picture of the man. He was extremely well-regarded throughout his life and afterwards. During his life, he was given many an honorary degree, was made a baron, and was offered a great number of prestigious positions that he often declined because he wanted to avoid politics. Many of his associates greatly admired him, but their descriptions show some downsides too. A few quotes for you. One of Lister's assistants said that he quote always stood in awe of Lister. One of his students wrote quote, a strange atmosphere of inaccessibility always enveloped him, end quote. and yet another student wrote, quote, We were never quite at our ease and never quite at our best with him. End quote. Other descriptions seem to match these. Lister was generally shy, with very few friends. Apparently, he was not actually a particularly good surgeon either, described as slow, nervous, and very sweaty, usually with a nurse present in the operating room just to wipe his brow. Ever serious, Lister was said to never laugh, lacked charisma and tact, and apparently sighed extremely regularly in response to any difficulty. But despite these quirks, He was also extremely religious, incredibly polite, and extremely kind to his patients, even paying for their stays in nursing homes so they could escape crowded hospital conditions. And of course, he was brilliant in other ways, as we'll see shortly. In 1864, Lister was working in a new, well-ventilated building, which they were certain would reduce the incidences of infection, of course by preventing the concentration of miasma. We know that that doesn't help, and it did not. Initially, Lister thought that the infections were due to a burial ground, supposedly beneath the block where the hospital was constructed. He, however, was skeptical of the theory of miasma, but was fairly sure that there was something in the air, potentially tiny, invisible particles instead of gas. Lister had worked in the past with some microscopes, which seemed to influence his thinking on the subject. Close, but no cigar. But the next year, in 1865, Lister was walking with his friend Dr. Thomas Anderson, a professor at Glasgow University, when Anderson mentioned Pasteur's work on germs, and their role in the decomposition of matter. Unlike many of the time, and because of his familiarity with the microscopic world, Lister immediately accepted Pasteur's findings, and it fit with what Lister himself had been thinking. Infections came from the germs, which were in the air, and already in the wound before the patient even arrived at the hospital. It all made sense. Lister then set about trying to figure out how to kill the germs. Pasteur, in his experiments, used heat, for example in milk, which is why pasteurization is a thing, and is called pasteurization. Unfortunately, you can't really stick your surgical patient in a pot and boil him for a while without serious side effects. Luckily lister had read about using carbolic acid to clean sewage in order to reduce illness and being used in hospitals as a cleaner generally he figured maybe it would be useful in wound treatment too his new method was unveiled later that year on an 11-year-old boy named james greenlees who had broken his legs when struck by a cart i'll let lister describe it for you himself Quote, "my house surgeon dr McPhee, acting under my instructions "'laid a piece of lint dipped in liquid carbolic acid upon the wound "'and applied lateral pasteboard splints padded with cotton wool, "'the limb resting on its outer side with the knee bent. "'It was left undisturbed for four days "'when, the boy complaining of some uneasiness, "'I removed the inner splint and examined the wound. "'It showed no sign of separation, "'but the skin in its immediate vicinity had a slight blush of redness. "'I now dressed the sore with some water, having a small proportion of carbolic acid diffused through it, and this was continued for five days, during which the uneasiness and the redness disappeared, the sore meanwhile furnishing no pus, although some superficial sloths caused by the acid were separating. End quote. Separation, by the way, is a fancy word meaning generation of pus. If you recall from earlier, it was usually really common at this time for wounds to generate a lot of pus as the body dealt with germs, so no sign of any pus is very good. This description is more or less consistent with what we'd expect. The acid would help kill germs on the wound, which would help prevent infection, but would also irritate the skin because of the acidity. However, this was just one case, and a relatively minor injury at that. Lister himself wrote that the injury may have healed without the carbolic acid anyway. So he tried it again on a much more serious case 10 months later. This time, it was a large wound with lots of bleeding, and a complicated bone fracture. Lister removed as much blood clot as possible, swabbed the wound with carbolic acid, attached his carbolic acid-soaked lint, and then covered the lint with tin to provide a physical barrier to any further germs. This was to become his standard method for some time, and worked well enough to publish a study in The Lancet, a well-known medical journal. It was only on 11 patients, but using his new method, not one had died from sepsis, a large contrast from the frequent deaths from infection of the time. He was to continue innovating for a long time on these techniques. Over the next years, he made a paste instead that slowly released carbolic acid instead of having to use soaked lint. By August 1867, his results were so good, he reported to the British Medical Association, quote, since the antiseptic system has been brought into full operation, and wounds and abscesses no longer poison the atmosphere with putrid exhalations, my wards, although in other respects under precisely the same circumstance as before, have completely changed their character, so that during the last nine months, not a single instance of pyemia, hospital gangrene, or erysipelas has occurred in them." End quote. Pyemia, gangrene, and erysipelas are all subtypes of sepsis. So no cases from surgery for 9 months was a big deal. Unfortunately, it took a long time for Lister's antiseptic methods to become widely adapted. It took around 15 years for his work to catch on broadly, and in that time, he continued to refine his tools and techniques. Let's stop there for this week, and I'll talk next week about the new innovations that came with the wide adoption of Lister's ideas. Like usual, thank you for lending me your ear. If you'd like to show your appreciation for the show, please like us on Facebook, throw a rating or review on iTunes, or just tell a friend. Finally, thanks to my editor, Jojo Tang, my cover artist, Angie Lee, and Muse Open for our opening and closing music.